All right, amen. The kids can be dismissed to junior church, and the rest of us can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Praise the Lord uh, for His love, His fatherly compassion. And uh, Matthew chapter 5 today. So I'm not going to do a, kind of a traditional Father's Day sort of message today. Uh, we uh, first had a pastor, uh, well, we had the McPhillips here a couple weeks ago, and then we've got a guest speaker next week, and just a few other things coming up. So I so wanted to keep going with our series uh, today through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so men, uh, I'm, you know, instead of preaching a, you know, you know, a feel-good, you're wonderful, you're great, you're one, you know, we're, we're so thankful for you sort of message. Uh, our series has instead brought us to a text uh, that confronts a couple of areas where a lot of men really struggle. Anger and peacemaking. And those are also areas where lots of women struggle, all right? And so we're not alone in this. So our text for today is Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. So let's go ahead and read uh, what the text says. It says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison." Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, this passage is the first of six paragraphs uh, through the remainder of chapter 5 uh, that, that, that all uh, begin uh, the same sort of way. So, so Jesus begins each of these really interesting and really convicting paragraphs uh, by, by quoting uh, some statement from the Old Testament law or, or some Jewish tradition that had come up around the law. So, 21 is pretty typical. It begins by saying, you have heard that it was said. And then Jesus quotes uh, from the Old Testament. He says, you shall not murder. And, and so, he makes the statement from the law, and, and then Jesus responds uh, to this by saying, but I say to you, as we have in verse 22, and then he adds his own authoritative instruction to what the law said. So, so as we said last week, he came to fulfill the law. And so, and so Jesus shows us the, the, the deeper significance of, of his teaching uh, built off of the law. So, so as we saw last week, he's not trying to undermine the law. He, he's not uh, correcting the law, so to speak. No, he's building on it. And in particular, in these six paragraphs, he is going to push us to, to a deeper, sincere, heart-focused godliness 
than, than was generally missing from, from the Judaism of Jesus' day and is generally absent from most legalistic religions that have sprung up around the world. No, as verse 20 says, Jesus demands that we pursue a deeper righteousness than the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And, and so, so this is a challenging section. These six paragraphs are all very potent, very pointed. Now, maybe you, you've heard the, the line before that you know, sometimes we joke when, when a preacher uh, is, is beginning to really press on our sore spots. You know, people say, you're not preaching anymore, you're meddling. You ever heard that one? And the point is, you know, stop touching me where it hurts. Well, Jesus apparently didn't hear that one because he's going to do some serious meddling in these six paragraphs and really all the way through the end of the sermon. And that's good, right? It's not always pleasant for people to, uh, for, for the Spirit to convict our hearts, but it's always best to be where God wants us to be to correct the things that are broken in our hearts. And that certainly includes the passage before us today. So that, so this, uh, so that begins with our text today, and especially uh, with this shocking warning with which Jesus is going to begin in verses 21 through 22. So the first truth I want us to see from our text is, is that, see if this thing is working. Not working. There we go. That anger brings God's judgment. So, so as Jesus does in all six of these paragraphs, he begins with a contrast between what his audience knew well from, from the law and Jewish tradition and, and Jesus' authoritative addition to that teaching. So first, it was a well-known fact in Israel, I think it's still not working, so, that God condemns murder, all right? God condemns murder. So, so, so Jesus here in verse 21 looks back to the formation of Israel at Mount Sinai, all right? And he recites the sixth of the Ten Commandments that God delivered, he says, to those of old, speaking of, of the wilderness generation. And so God told them in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The law was very clear that, that to take another life, except for a few exceptional cases like in war, or in self-defense, that it is wrong to take the life of another person. And I think it's worth noting that that, that idea that, that murder is wrong goes back much further uh, than just the Old Testament law. So, um, so the Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now, now notice there in that verse, that God told Noah that what makes murder especially egregious is the fact that man is made in the image of God. So, so when someone takes the life of another human being, they're not just hurting that person. They are also dishonoring God himself because of the image of God in man. And so therefore, in this verse... God gives man, and really in context, he's talking about human government. He, he gives the government the authority to execute murderers. So Jesus says in our text uh, there in, in verse 21 that, that they are in danger of judgment, speaking there of a human court that would hold them liable for murder. So, so Jesus says, Murder is wrong, and, and, and it, it deserves the judgment of God. And, and so far then, 
Uh, Jesus hasn't said anything surprising or controversial, has he? And I imagine that just about everyone in Jesus' audience would agree with that. That murder is bad. And I would assume that everyone in this room agrees with that. Murder is bad. And that murder deserves the most severe form of judgment. Law specifically said, Genesis 9 verse 6 said, that it deserves death. If someone takes the life of another person, an innocent person, they should be killed themselves. But in verse 22, Jesus makes a very surprising and very controversial addition to the, new, to the sixth commandment. Jesus asserts that God also condemns vicious anger towards my fellow man. Now, I just want you to imagine that you were in the crowd that day when Jesus first preached the Sermon on the Mount. You're standing there on that hillside along with all these other Jews, and you hear verse 21, and you think, yes, I got that one. It never happened when you're listening, you know, I, you know like, preach a text, and you're like, whew, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm off the hook today because I got this one down. So, so they hear verse 21, and they're thinking, yes, you know, I, I, I've never murdered anyone. I'm good. Well, then Jesus shocks everyone with verse 22. He says again, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. If you're standing there in that audience, all of a sudden, it got a little bit warmer. And, and Jesus, and that's because everyone struggles with anger, right? I mean, not just violent criminals. Now, all of us have, have had moments of, of sinful anger. So, and Jesus doesn't just condemn anger. He puts it on the same level as murder. So the temperature in the room just went up like 50 degrees, didn't it? And while the basic point of that statement is very clear, I don't, I don't think there's any, uh, it's not very hard to understand, we do need to walk carefully through what exactly Jesus is saying in, in this verse. So, so first of all, Jesus is saying, Jesus, I want to point out that Jesus' primary concern is broken relationships. Now, now, this is an important point because at first glance, we might miss that this is what's important. I mean, when we look at this passage, when we look at this paragraph, the word that jumps out to us is that word anger, all right? And, and rightfully so. But, but when you look at the paragraph as a whole, when you look at all six verses, it's clear that Jesus' primary concern is not simply the emotion of anger, but the broken relationships that that anger produces. So I say that because verse 22 doesn't just condemn anger, but then notice that Jesus goes on to condemn the abusive, demeaning language that comes out of anger. You know, that, that you would speak harshly towards another person. And then in verses 23 through 26... He follows with two examples that are focused on restoring broken relationships. Now, not simply on addressing the anger that's in my heart. So, so I want to be very clear that, that unrighteous anger is a big problem. All right? And I've talked about that. I, I did uh, three lessons on Sunday nights a uh, year and a half ago on anger. And I've written some blog posts on anger. It's a big deal. A verse that, that, that always just I mean, scares me to death is Ephesians 4.27, where, where Paul warns that anger Satan an opportunity. If you have anger and bitterness in your heart, 
It's like there is a massive hole in the defense walls around your heart. That Satan uses anger to penetrate and to destroy. So, so I in no way today want to diminish how, how serious anger is in and of itself and the fact that you need to address it if you have those problems. But, but I also want us to understand that that's not Jesus' primary concern. He is especially concerned with a vicious anger that leads me to do harm to other people and, and to break relationships. And, and that brings me to the second thing I want to point out about verse 22, which is that vicious anger breeds abusive speech. So, so Jesus goes on to, to say, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Now, now we're not entirely sure what that word Raka means. Uh, we do know uh, that, that it comes from an Aramaic term, which the root means empty. So, so most people assume that it's, you know, here it's used as a name, uh, for someone, a demeaning name, that it probably means something like empty-headed, all right? So, so we would call someone a knucklehead or a blockhead, and, and it would be something like that. It's, it's a demeaning name to put someone down as, you know, there's nothing between the ears. And, uh, and, and so Jesus, so that's the first word. It, it's a harsh name. And then the second name, he, he goes on to say, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, now this phrase, this word, you fool, uh, is a little more familiar. Uh, the, the Greek word is moros, our word moron from it, and the idea is not very different. You know, if you call someone a moron, that's not a term of affection, is it? I mean, you're saying, you know, you're dumb, you know, you're not thinking. And, and, so, and so Jesus, again, assumes that it's a name that is used uh, abusively or out of anger and hatred. And the result of both of these names is that one of God's image bearers is belittled and dishonored. And really, that's why the parallel between anger and murder. Both murder and slanderous speech do not rightly value a fellow human being as an image bearer of God. When you demean someone through your language, you are not simply demeaning that person. You are also demeaning God himself. Now, that's a heavy, heavy challenge, isn't it? Because very often we throw around demeaning language like it's nothing. And we call people idiots, stupid, moron, all the time. But, but, but Jesus says that abusive, harsh language is a serious problem. It is contrary to love, and it is contrary to the nature of our God. And then a third thing I want us to see in this is that Jesus especially condemns anger toward a fellow disciple. So verse 22, I think it's important to point out, it says, but whoever is angry with his brother. Now, now then that would be speaking there specifically of, of a fellow Christian or a fellow disciple of Christ. Now, of course, it's also true that, that this sort of vicious attack is wrong no matter who it's addressed to. So Jesus is not saying, you know, don't call a fellow Christian a moron, but you can call everyone else a moron, all right? But, but, but he is saying that it's especially problematic when I aim that sort of attack at a fellow Christian in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells. Now, Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. So when I contradict that love, 
I am contradicting the Spirit of Christ and, and what He has done in us. And, and no matter who might win the argument that you're having with that individual, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7 says, it is already an utter failure when believers publicly smash heads, demean each other, and are angry at each other. And as a result, a fourth point I want us to see in verse 22 is that God judges vicious anger. So, so notice that, that Jesus warns in verse 22 of three penalties. He mentions danger of the judgment, danger of the council, and danger of hellfire. Now, now the second term that Jesus uses there is a word uh, that, from which we get the word Sanhedrin. So, so the Sanhedrin was the highest council in, in Israel, the, the 70 elders uh, that were the highest ruling body at the time that Jesus lived. Uh, but I don't believe that Jesus here is specifically talking about that, that gourd of 70 men, that, that instead the other two terms point to the fact that he is ultimately warning here of divine judgment. That if I am angry at my brother, if I am demeaning towards my brother, that God's judgment awaits. And so together, these warnings emphasize God's absolute hatred of vicious speech and the judgment it will bring. And Jesus here is warning us, folks, that, that, that you know, as much as, I mean, as, much as anger, as, as much as, as yelling and being nasty towards each other is just you know, assumed part of life in, in so much of our culture, that he is warning that it is fundamentally contrary to the indwelling spirit. And frankly, he warns that, that if my life is marked by this sort of anger and abusive speech, that it even calls into question the profession of my faith, right? Because he says, you are in danger of hellfire. So, so if I am filled with anger, and I walk around just railing on, on everyone and everything, I shouldn't just assume I'm right with God and the Spirit of God is in me and everything's okay. I mean, this is serious stuff. And that's a shocking warning, isn't it? I mean, after all, I mean, we oftentimes harbor deep resentment and anger towards other people. And, and, and oftentimes we don't bat an eye about saying harsh things. You know, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I grew up on the farm and I've worked in, in various, you know, blue-collar settings and you get a bunch of guys together working in the heat and you're tired and it's exhausting and it doesn't take long before, man, we're at each other's throats and we're yelling, we're fiery at each other and we just dismiss it and, and, and we think it's no big deal. You know, and if someone challenges us about our harsh words, well, we're, we're, you know, maybe we say, well, well, that's just how we talk to each other as a family. I don't really mean it when I say those things. You know, or, or, or we claim that, you know, that's what everyone does. That's just how we talk. It's no big deal. You know, maybe you've said, well, that's how God made me. You know, I mean, God made me, you know, I, I, the way I'm wired, I, I speak my mind. I just say what I think, and, and the world's just going to have to deal with me saying what I think. You know, the reality is, is that slander is one of those respectable sins that, that Christians can can practice all the time, and, and we just kind of think, well, that's what people do. It's okay. 
and, and we don't really see it as the serious thing that it is. But we need to make sure that Jesus sets our standard, not the world. And we need to feel the full force of what Jesus says in this verse. So understand today that your anger, your bitterness, your resentment against other people and the harsh things that come out as a result, they are no small thing. And when you use harsh, demeaning language, it's no joke either. It's not a joke. Or how about this one? You know, we say something, you know, we lose our temper, we, we blow up on someone, and then we say, well, that's not really who I am. I don't know where that came from because that's not who I am. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. Because Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 34, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when those words come out of your mouth, it is not contrary to who you are. It is a revelation of who you are. And so we need to, and, and so you can't just say, well, you can't just say, well, well, work has been stressful. There's a lot going on at home. You know, I've got this going on and that going on, and so, and so it's okay. No. I mean, Jesus, or excuse me, James chapter 4, verse 1, um, uh, asks, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? Again, you know, our, our fights, our conflicts, our harsh language, it, it's not because of everything going on out there. James says it's the result of my pleasures. It comes from inside me. So Jesus wants you to see the evil of this type of language, the evil of this sort of anger, and address it. So, so I want to urge you today that, that if you have become calloused and cold, um, you, know, you know, if you, uh, you and your spouse just constantly bickering at each other, sarcastic with each other, yelling at each other, you know, your, your method of disciplining your kids is not that you discipline them, you just get louder and louder and louder until the world blows up, that, that we need to, and that's not godliness, it is destructive, it dishonors God, and it needs to go. And I'll just mention that it's not just a sin against God and man. I mean, bitterness will destroy your heart like few other things. It, it shapes how you look at everything and everyone. I mean, the, the crankiest person is the person whose heart is filled with bitterness and anger. So don't tolerate it. Drive it out and replace it with the fruit of the Spirit. Be somebody who's marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So, so Jesus challenge, gives us a harsh, strong challenge here. Now, harsh is probably the wrong word. A strong challenge to, to change, to address the issue of anger and specifically how it affects our relationships. And, and then in verses 23 through 26, he builds off this with two case studies, you could say. And the first case study, he teaches us that peacemaking is essential to fellowship with God. So, so look at what he says again in verses 23 and 24. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
So, so here Jesus prevent, presents a, a theoretical scenario uh, to make a really practical, a very important point. And, and I do want to point out at the outset here that, that this scenario is built around temple worship in Jerusalem. So, so, so it has a lot of application to our life in the New Testament church, but we do need to begin with the fact that he's speaking to Jews under the law about their worship in the temple. All right, so, so I think it's important that we, we understand that going in. I think it's also worth remembering that, that most of Jesus' audience does not live in Jerusalem, right? They live up in Galilee because he's preaching along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So, so most of his readers live several days' journey from the temple, all right? Which is really important context when you think about what Jesus is going to ask them to do. So, so imagine this guy here in verse 3. Let's say, you know, he lives up in Cana, Cana of Galilee or Capernaum. And so he's going to go down to the temple in Jerusalem. And so for several days, he walks in the heat. He camps at night. Finally reaches Jerusalem. He's exhausted. And then he goes to the temple, probably has to stand in line for quite a while before it's his turn to get to the altar. And finally... He's standing over the altar of burnt offering, or, or if he's potentially thank offering. He's got his animal, or he's got his grain. And, and while he's standing there, he's like, whew, I finally made it. And then while he's standing there, he remembers that his brother has something against him. Now, now it's important that we understand exactly what Jesus is talking about there, because we often read, times read this and assume uh, that the issue is, is that he is angry at his brother. But that's not actually what it says, right? It says he remembers that his brother, that, that, that he has done something to offend his brother. All right? So, so the worshiper has sinned against his brother. He has done something to hurt him, or maybe it could just be. Uh, it could be that there's some sort of misunderstanding. And, and while he's standing there at the altar, he remembers that. And as a result... He doesn't have a clear conscience before man. But surely, all right, you, know, you, you can imagine the, the conflict going on in this guy's head. Oh, oh I did that. But, but surely, surely that, that doesn't mean I'm not qualified to worship God, right? You know, I mean, just think about the excuses this guy has at his disposal. When I traveled for several days to get down here, I, I'm standing right over the top of the altar. And my conflict is not with God. I'm right with God. I've just got an issue with this guy over here. How, how does my issue with this guy over here possibly affect my ability to approach God in worship? But Jesus says, none of those excuses matter. In verse 24, he says, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus says, this man is unqualified to worship God. And it's such a big deal that he has this unresolved conflict or this unresolved sin that that he is to leave his gift at the altar, go all the way back up to Galilee, resolve the issue with his brother, travel all the way back down to Jerusalem, and then present his offering. That's quite quite a requirement of Jesus, isn't it? It's shocking. 
frankly. So, so what is Jesus trying to say? Well, well I want to point out two things. Uh, first thing that Jesus is pointing out, we can advance the slide, is that Jesus demands that we aggressively pursue peace with other people and, and reconcile broken relationships. Now, so, so not just mention before I, I get into the primary things I want to say, a couple more qualifiers. All right, and the first is, is, is that reconciling a broken relationship uh, always requires two parties, right? You know, so, so, so there may be times where, where you have a, a, a broken relationship and you do everything in your power to resolve that conflict, but the other person just refuses. They, they are not going to forgive. They are not going to move on. They're going to hold it against you until uh, the end of time. And that's tough, isn't it? Now, I imagine there's some of you in this room that, that you, when you come to a passage like this, it hurts because you grieve over some broken relationship with a family member, a friend, and, and you've tried everything in your power to fix it. And the other guy just won't do anything. And unfortunately, I can't guarantee that that relationship will ever be restored. But, but you can know that God sees your heart. God sees the effort you've put forth. And, and if you have tried everything in your power to restore it, then, then God is pleased. And because of that, I really appreciate this verse. It's on the screen. Romans twelve eighteen says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So, so God says, I want you to pursue peace. I want you to pursue unity with everyone possible. But he says, it's not always possible. So, so as much as depends on you, pursue peace and leave the rest with God. Another qualifier I want to mention is that, is that we should never sacrifice purity in order to gain peace. So James 3 verse 17 says, the wisdom that is from, a, from above is first pure and then peaceable. So, so that means, you know, and that's, I think that's one's important too, because oftentimes, you know, it might be that your faith is, is what has created a divide between you and some of your family members. And the only way that you can really just get along and fit in well with your family is if you sacrifice, if you compromise some aspect of your faith. And God would never want you to do that. You should never sacrifice your obedience to Christ, uh, your faithfulness to his word, to gain peace. Because purity takes priority over peace. So, so that is an important point to keep in mind. But, but if obedience is not at stake, then, then we must aggressively pursue peace. And we especially must work to make right our wrongs against other people. Now that's where peacemaking takes a lot of humility, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and, and that's where... It gets really difficult because you know, when there's a conflict, we, we generally tend to be a lot harder on the other guy than we are on ourselves. You know, so if someone hurts me, it's a big deal. I mean, he sinned against me, he hurt me, and he better apologize. You know, but if someone is mad at me, well, he's, he just, he's making a mountain over a molehill. He needs to get over it. Why is he upset? He just needs to move on. You know, I had a conflict with a kid out here at VBS this week, or a conversation, not a conflict. And he was talking about how he was so mad at this other kid. And it was like the world was caving in. 
You know, we get so fired up over other people's sins. And, and, you know, having that attitude might make you feel a whole lot better in the short term, but it never leads to reconciliation. As long as, as you are more critical of the other person than you are of yourself, you, you will never reconcile. You know, I've seen it over and over in my life. I've seen it over and over in, in doing pastoral counseling and watching other people that peacemaking always begins with humility. You know, and someone sits down with me and, they want to, and they've got a broken relationship and all they want to do is talk about all the things that the other person has done. It's like, well, we're not going to get very far today. But when someone comes in and says, man, I've got this broken relationship, I, you know, and, and all they want to do is talk about all that they did, you're going to get somewhere fast. And, and it might be that the other person, you know, that the fault is 70% with the other person and 30% with you. You still need to fall on the sword, own your 30%, not with a list of 10 qualifiers as to why they need to own theirs too. Own your 30%. Because you sinned against the Lord and you sinned against your brother, confess it as the sin that it is, and ask that person to forgive you. And don't procrastinate on doing that. You know, when the Spirit points out your sin as happened to the man in our text, you know, don't say, well, I'll get to it at Christmas. I'll get to it at Labor Day. No, deal with it. Jesus says, take care of it now. So, so confess it to the Lord and then go make it right with that person. You know, I mean, Paul said in Acts 24, verse 16, we could advance it there. As he, he stands before the council, he says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. That's a wonderful verse, a simple verse, a challenging verse. So I imagine that that right now the Spirit is convicting some of you about offenses that you need to make right. And you've sinned against someone. You've said something you shouldn't say. You've done something you shouldn't do. and, And you recognize it as sin. I want to urge you to make it right as soon as possible. You know, find that person. You know, don't make excuses for your sin. Don't find him and say, you know, I said this thing I shouldn't have said. But you did all these other things to, to make me angry. You know, find them, tell them you sinned, and ask them for, to, to forgive you. And that might take a really big dose of humility. It, you might have to swallow a really big pill. But Jesus says, it's the heart of true religion. The Christians own their sin and confess it. And so peacemaking is a priority. The secondly, the second thing I want us to see in this, from this verse is that peacemaking is essential to fellowship with God. Now, the clear implication of these verses is that your offense against another person doesn't just affect your relationship with that person. It also affects your relationship to God and your ability to approach God in worship, right? Because Jesus tells this person who is standing at the altar, I mean, the the very core central act of worship for an Israelite, that before he can proceed with worshiping God, he first needs to go and, and resolve this conflict. So Jesus is clear that you cannot have a clear conscience before God if you do not have a clear conscience with others. 
Now, that's, a, that's another very important reminder because we really like to compartmentalize our lives, right? You know, so, so we've got this stuff going on over here in my life that we know is embarrassing and not real good. But then we show up to church, smile on our face, happy to be here. You know, we do lots of ministry. We're involved in various places. And we think that we can just put a hard line between those two and think those two things don't affect each other. But Jesus says that's not true. He sees everything. And he wants all of your heart. And when I refuse to submit part of my heart to him, it affects my ability to draw near to God and to worship him. So so God really cares about how you treat other people and how you respond to your sins. So as the Spirit prompts you, I want to urge you to make those things right. Confess it to the Lord. And then go knock on someone's door. You know, make that phone call. Write that letter. Now you may think, well, well I don't know how, I, I'm not quite sure what to say. You know, what if, what if I, I, bring, I broach the subject and they blow up in my face and get angry? You know, I, I can't guarantee how it'll turn out. I can say that most of the time you show up in humility and love, people respond to that. So just be humble, be gracious, be loving. And at the end of the day, even if the other guy does blow up in your face, you're right with the Lord. God sees. So do what's right before the Lord and leave the rest to him. So so Jesus gives quite the challenge here. He says, peacemaking is essential to fellowship with God. And then the final challenge he gives in verses 25 and 26 is aggressively pursue reconciliation while you have time. So verse 25 again says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, now in these verses, uh, Jesus describes a man uh, with an overdue debt. That, that's the scenario that's at stake. And we know uh, that the issue is, uh, is a debt that he hasn't paid because verse 26 says that he is going to be held responsible until he has paid the last penny, all right? So, so, so this man uh, has, has accrued some sort of debt with another person. Maybe he borrowed money. Uh, maybe he, you know, killed his ox or something like that. Who knows what exactly the, the source of the debt is, uh, but... But, but he has accrued this debt, and he has been negligent in paying the debt off. And it's reached the point where, where, where the, the, other, the, the one to whom he is indebted is bringing him to court. And in the ancient world, if you didn't pay your debts, you went to debtor's prison. Now, now we don't really do that in our day. Uh, we have bankruptcy laws and all sorts of other ways for, for people to get out of, of paying their debts. Uh, but it was very common in the ancient world. But, of course, debtor's prison was, was sort of counterproductive for everyone, right? Because it's hard to pay off a debt when you're sitting in a jail cell. And, of course, it's also hard to, to just support your family. And, and if you can't work to pay off your debt, then the guy into, to whom you're indebted, he's not getting anything either. So, so it really was sort of a counterproductive thing. But if, 
if a guy won't pay off his debt and, and you're the guy to whom he's indebted, well, 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 what other recourse do you have? But in Jesus' story of the debtor, he is on his way to appear before the judge, and while he's walking, he meets the guy to whom he is indebted. So maybe he's walking down one road, and there's that guy over there that's trying to throw me in prison. Now, he's got two options, right? First option, stick his nose in the air. I'm not talking to that guy. He's a jerk. I'm not going to do anything to fix this. And he can go appear before the judge, and he can have his pride and his macho whatever and go to jail. Or the other option would be that he can approach the man, humble himself, recognize that judgment is coming, and he can strike a deal and you know, maybe say, you know, sir, I, I, I can't pay it all off immediately, and I don't know if I'll ever be able to pay it all off, but I'll pay you this amount you know, per month for this long, and, and that's better for you than you not getting anything while I'm in jail. So, so he can humble himself and go strike a deal before he goes to the judgment. So what's the point? Well, well, the point is, is, and I do think we need to say here, we need to be careful about pressing the details of a story like this too far, because we can come up with some kind of quacky applications uh, if we're not careful. Uh, Rather, we need to stay focused on Jesus' message in context, which is clearly about reconciliation. So, so, So Jesus here is warning, first of all, that judgment is coming. So God sees every hateful comment. He sees every lie. He sees every word of gossip. And he's going to hold us accountable for all of it. Now, of course, if you're in Christ, you will not be sentenced to hell. It's not like God's going to just, you know, like lash you or something like that. But we are going to be held accountable. So, so like the man in the story, I have two options. You know, I can pretend like I'm in charge stick my nose in the air and ignore my offense and someday. Or I can humble myself before God and make the offense right while I have time. And if I do that, I can look forward to standing before the God, before the Lord someday. And you know, as Paul said next, 24, 6, 16, with a conscience void of offense before God and man. And I can stand before God at the judgment someday. Happy. Content with the life that I've lived, with joy, not regret. Option two makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? So so Jesus is urging us to aggressively pursue reconciliation while we have time. Today's Father's Day. And I imagine there's probably some of you in this room that have no intention of calling your dad today or talking to your dad. Or maybe you're going to talk to him or see him, but you plan to keep him at arm's length because of some sin or some issue that has stood between you and your dad for years. And Jesus would say to you, don't wait until it's too late. Resolve that issue as soon as you can. And and so if you have sinned, make it right. But regardless, show love, pursue peace. And the same goes for every other broken relationship or unconfessed sin. So, so maybe today, the God's Spirit is bringing something to your mind. You know, maybe it's something that's been on your mind for a long time, but you've just kind of been pushing it down the road. Or maybe, you know, sometimes the Spirit, you know, sometimes the Spirit just brings things to our mind that, that, that we've never 
thought of before or never recognized before. And, and so as the Spirit does that, I want to urge you to aggressively pursue reconciliation. It's not, your pride is not worth it. The, the, the uncomfortableness of, of, the, of dealing with it is not worth it. Humble yourself before the Lord. Confess your sin to the Lord and then confess it to the other person. Pursue peace. Folks, I know this stuff is hard. This is a hard sermon to preach. It's been a hard text to study this week. But, but the grace of God is sufficient. The grace of God is sufficient for every challenge. And so do the right thing. Do the right thing, even if it's hard. And understand, again, that this stuff matters. Um, This quote, uh, advance one more slide. Grant Osborne says in his commentary on on this passage, to be angry or feel contempt for another is to disparage God's child and therefore God himself. We cannot separate relationships with others from our relationship with God. You cannot be a good Christian. You cannot dwell in the Lord's presence in prayer. You know, you cannot expect the Lord's blessing for your ministry at life point. If if you are not dealing with this side of your life, it's all connected. So confess your sin to the Lord and then confess it to your neighbor. Love the Lord by loving your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for putting this hard passage in the Word. And Lord, I I thank you for how you have challenged me this week. And Lord, I'm sure that your Word is working in our hearts right now. And so God, I pray that as your Spirit is moving in people's hearts, that Lord, we would be responsive to your Spirit We would humble ourselves before you and then humble ourselves before others. And God, give us grace to do hard things. Give us grace to press forward. Oh, Lord, help us to lean on each other as we need to. And God, I pray that you would strengthen us to do these things and to give us wisdom, give us grace, give us humility. And Father, glorify yourself through through us going through the process that Jesus is calling us to. Father, we love you, and we pray for grace to honor you and to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.